to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Privacy International and the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. The citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 22. And this is probably the most high-profile case of 2019 for the Supreme Court, and it may also end up being the most important too. In fact, you might have already read a little bit about this case in the mainstream media if you happen to be keeping up over the exam season. The appellants in this case are the charity Privacy International, who, since 1990, have worked to promote and defend the right to privacy. The origins of this case actually go back to a challenge of so-called thematic warrants, which are very general in nature and allow the Secretary of State to authorise, quote, the taking of such action as is specified in the warrant in respect of any property so specified, end quote. Clearly, these are quite extraordinary and not like normal police warrants, as one could be used to cover something like all motor vehicles in Birmingham, for example. As a result, the claim brought by Privacy International did not go through the ordinary court system, but instead went before the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. That tribunal was established in 2000 and serves to hold the secret services to account, among other things. Unfortunately for Privacy International, their complaint about the thematic warrant was not upheld by the tribunal, and so their next step was to seek a judicial review of that decision. Whether a judicial review is even allowed in these circumstances is the subject of this case, because under section 67.8 of the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act 2000, which is the legal foundation for the existence of the tribunal, quote, determinations, awards, orders and other decisions of the tribunal, including decisions as to whether they have jurisdiction, shall not be subject to appeal or be liable to be questioned in any court, end quote. With that in mind, the High Court held that judicial review was prohibited, and the Court of Appeal agreed, so with their last throw of the die, Privacy International took their case to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. And for law students, this case may be giving you a sense of déjà vu, and that is because it bears a lot of similarities with the case of Anis Minnick and FCC from 1969 that is a staple of any public law course. By way of a quick reminder, the Annas Minnick case came out of the Suez Crisis and the compensation due to be paid out to British companies. This was to be decided upon by the Foreign Compensation Commission, and one of the rules was that, quote, the determination by the Commission of any application made to them under this Act shall not be called into question in any court of law, end quote. All very familiar, but anyway, the House of Lords decided that the ouster clause would not apply, and that any such provision would have to be entirely explicit if it was going to successfully oust the jurisdiction of the courts. The subtext of this judgment being that judges should be allowed to judge, and it is tantamount to an abuse of the rule of law to not allow decisions made by public bodies to be subject to the jurisdiction of the courts. The parallel between that case and the present one was the starting point for Lord Carnworth in his majority judgment, and therefore requires a close scrutiny of section 67.8. At first glance it looks pretty clear that this will oust the jurisdiction of the courts and therefore block any potential judicial review, but the justice decided to focus his analysis on the word determination that is used in that subsection. In a previous case from 1983 called O'Reilly and Mackman, the acclaimed judge Lord Diplock stated that a determination could only truly refer to a legally valid determination, 
and therefore in relation to other determinations the court would still maintain the jurisdiction. The same can be said about the use of the word determination here in 2019, and in fact Lord Lloyd-Jones goes so far as to note that it is unusual that the subsection was drafted in seemingly complete ignorance of that previous decision in O'Reilly. A more solid formulation might have instead referred to both determinations and purported determinations, and so as it stands, section 67.8 applies only to legally valid determinations. One of the other questions that does come up in this context is why this case is so different to what we are used to when it comes to statutory interpretation. After all, we are used to the words in legislation being given their plain, ordinary meaning. But here it seems that the justices are almost deliberately bending the words as far as they can in order to get the interpretation that they want. That is something that is addressed in the lead judgment as it is stated that this is not really a case of ordinary statutory interpretation because there is already a presumption derived from the common law against excluding the jurisdiction of the courts. In other words, an ouster clause is always going to be facing an uphill battle and in a literal war of words between some underpaid government drafter and the top judges in the land, it is a fair bet that the judges will come out on top and the legislative provision will fail. This is especially the case when you consider that those self-same judges are also the people who will make the final decision. To be honest, that probably isn't fair, but fairness is a distinct question from whether this approach is right or not in this context. Lord Lloyd-Jones expands on this from a constitutional perspective with parliamentary sovereignty as a starting point. If Parliament is going to be sovereign and enact all the laws that it deems necessary, then this will require an independent judiciary that can provide an authoritative interpretation. Any change to those fundamental checks and balances is going to need to be scrutinised very carefully indeed and will ultimately be a question for the courts. Excluding the power of review will severely harm the rule of law in this country as it allows the decisions of public bodies to become arbitrary and pernicious. Even on a practical level, it is easy to see how no review over the Investigatory Powers Tribunal would allow the tribunal to almost carve out its own jurisdictional island in the legal system of this country, where it could begin to create its own case law and precedents at will. Not only does that make no sense, but it is also quite a scary prospect when it comes down to it. The secret services would be able to operate with impunity and only be subject to a jurisdiction that already does not have a great reputation. Of course, we also have to remember that this case was only won by a small majority of four to three, and so we have to pay close attention to the views of the minority as well. One of those dissenting judgments came from Lord Sumption, who dismissed these concerns about the rule of law by pointing out that it is not like we are losing complete oversight of the secret services because the tribunal is still a judicial body that, like any other court, is independent and authoritative. Thematic warrants are clearly within its remit and the ouster clause is effective to make that decision the final one on the matter. Lord Wilson complimented this dissent by pointing out that the plain and obvious reading of section 67.8 operates to exclude the jurisdiction of the High Court even in the light of the decision in Anisminic. I think that as we begin our analysis of this case, it is important to recognise that the three judges in the minority do have a valid point to be made here, in both a legal and constitutional sense. Anisminic is an important case, but 
All it tells us is that any ousted clause has to be drafted in such a way that it explicitly excludes judicial review. There is a strong argument that this is the effect of section 67.8, not only because this is the interpretation that a reasonable person would give, but also because even when we account for the decision in O'Reilly that we mentioned earlier on in this case, the word determination could still be taken to include both actual and purported determinations. Beyond that, it is important not to blow the constitutional implications of the legislation out of proportion. In a perfect world, there would be full judicial review powers, but we are, after all, talking about the secret services, and so there are certain sacrifices that have to be made in the interests of national security. It could be said that the fact that there is an independent judicial body looking into these types of cases at all is a good thing, and is much more rigorous than what might be expected from the security services in many other countries. Having said all this, I think that in the end it is the majority who end up making the stronger argument in the course of this judgement. For a start, section 67.8 is not well drafted, given the decision in O'Reilly, and it is only the ignorance of the government drafter that has allowed the space in the law to be exploited. An important provision like this will have gone past several pairs of eyes within a legal team, and so this decision by the Supreme Court is an indictment of the government legal department as much as anything else. Nevertheless, that space is there, and the majority were right to apply O'Reilly, even if that was just a means of getting to a constitutionally tolerable decision overall. This opens up the question about how we should think about this case as it interacts with the constitution. We can't ignore the fact that security apparatus have to be able to operate in a proficient manner, but does this mean that we can undermine any number of constitutional principles in the process? On balance, the answer has to be a no. The tribunal might well be an independent judicial body, but the cases that they are dealing with are especially controversial and of special public importance. For the members of this panel to sit in isolation with no meaningful connection to the rest of the legal system is worrying, and this is borne out in the fact that only a tiny percentage of complaints are ever upheld, and the widespread view that the tribunal is largely ineffective. Judicial review is rarely convenient for the powers that be, but this is a good example of what an important constitutional role the courts can play when it comes to holding the government to account. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Remember, you can always check out my website at uklawweekly.com, and I'll be back with another case next week. So for now, bye!